0: Welcome to the Lifestyle Business Podcast, the only podcast on iTunes guaranteed not to show up in iTunes, even if you search for our damn key terms. And in the eternal struggle between talking shit and doing shit. We are currently coming up. Talking shit all the time, every day. I am currently joined by my captain, my co-host, a man who puts the business in lifestyle business. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I'll tell you about the best book that I've read in the past two years, and Ian's going to tell you how he joined the text-text revolution in style. Let's jump to the news. Ian, what's going on, and what's your 20?
1: Dano, here in California, man. Basically, what's been going on is uh, we actually recorded this podcast yesterday. Yeah, it got deleted. So, if you ask me how I was doing yesterday, I was doing fabulous uh, (laughs) today. Today I'm filling out 45-page contracts, having heart palpitations, so uh, not as good. But I did pick up a new Kindle today. Got an early birthday present, so excited about that. What's going on with you?
0: Banging, buddy. Yeah, I'm in uh, Manila. I picked up a really nice condo right near the bay for a month just to kind of meet with some people that I'm doing projects with here in uh, the city, get caught up on a lot of work, meet with our team of developers and designers here in the city. And um, I'm also organizing the Tropical MBA Semester 3, and we're talking about how we're going to organize that, perhaps in Thailand. Again, the Tropical MBA is not only my blog, but it's a, a paid internship that our company runs, and we're looking to get a uh, paid intern to help us at the podcast here, and with that new auto product that we've been talking about a couple episodes back, which we're going to put off till next episode, I think, to talk about that. Um, so those are the kind of uh, news... Uh, items that's happening. I'm also going to be buying a ticket tonight. I'm going to go home for the holidays and I'm going to be in New York City for a week over New Year's Eve. That's kind of uh, what's going on in my life. One quick thing, the show has its first sponsor. Where's the applause button? Gutshot Studios. If you're looking for a beautifully designed WordPress site, these guys are absolute ninjas. If you're looking to jumpstart your business or blog, Go to GutShotStudios.com, check out their portfolio, it's incredible. They've had hundreds of beautiful sites. Even if, if you're not going to become a client at GutShot Studios, it's a great place to go to get design inspiration, and as a bonus, Ian, GutShot Studios is in part owned by Chris from MyEggNoodles.com, and if you do become a client at GutShot Studios, you will have direct access to Chris. He's an absolute ninja, so if you need a great, beautiful site in WordPress, go check out our first sponsor, Gutshot Studios. .com. We've got a bunch of shouts. Baller. Baller, we got a bunch of shouts this week. We've, in fact, had four new iTunes reviews. David from Heroic Destiny says that this is his favorite podcast. And I don't doubt David because David occasionally does u-streams. And when I'm on Twitter and I see that David's going to do a stream I'll pop in there because that guy's smart. And I want to hear what he's got to say. I really enjoy hearing from him. And so I asked him a question. I said, David, what are your top three favorite blogs so that I can go check them out? And he didn't know who I was. First one he said was the Lifestyle Business Podcast. That's the, that's his favorite blog. So booyah. Uh, booyah! So thanks a lot, David, and thank you for the review, Eva Wilson. Eva Wilson writes: There are very few podcasts that I listen to regularly, and this is one of them. So, thank you, Wilson, and we appreciate the fact that you're just a little bit evil.
1: Josh Crocker, I can't believe this is still free. I've paid for stuff of lesser quality. Thanks for that, Josh. Don't we have an invoice laying around
0: with Josh Crocker's name on it somewhere?
1: Yeah, I think so. We can start charging you for this, Josh. Charge
0: We can charge, Josh. 50 bucks an episode. Oh.
1: Yeah, Brent N., finally, a startup business podcast that isn't an interview about the same 50 people. That's right, Brent. We rarely do interviews because uh, we don't really like interviews, although... uh, We never get interviewed either, so I guess that says something.
0: Yeah, no one wants to hear from us. I think they've heard from us enough. All right. Well, we've got a couple phone calls this week. Ian, first from Patrick in Raleigh, North Carolina. Take it away, Patrick. Hey, Dan,
2: this is Patrick. I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. I got into the lifestyle design thing... Started to get the passion for it last year. Of course, after reading Timothy Ferris's book, I have a brick and mortar plumbing company. Uh, it is my goal, actually, be like uh, I guess like Ducker, a virtual CEO here in the next year, year and a half. You and Ian really inspire me. I really enjoy your uh, your podcast. Possibly, I'm going to do a plumbing podcast. But I tell you what, my big thing right now is Fiverr.com thing, and we're going to be doing some plumbing videos, actually teaching real people how to do real plumbing not what you get in a book from Lowe's or Home Depot. We're gonna teach them the real way to do it so they can save themselves money. Hopefully, you know, within a year, year and a half, I won't actually be in the field plumbing anymore. So I think you guys are really influencing people like myself. I'm just under 40 years old and uh, just really inspiring.
1: Hey, thanks, Patrick. And this is awesome to hear from a guy like Patrick because I think a guy like Patrick makes up a lot of our listeners. And uh, Patrick is essentially running a tangible business. Uh, he is looking to become the virtual CEO in the next year. Patrick, that would be awesome if you can pull that off. I'm sure you can. Uh, and he's running a plumbing business. So yeah, and Patrick
0: cool. is really an example of an inversion that I see. There's a mem that goes around the internet quite a bit, which is that lifestyle design is all a bunch of 20 year old bloggers and That's fundamentally incorrect based on my experience. People that have real businesses and that have a lot of career experience are much more poised to take advantage of Tim Ferriss's techniques and tips and tricks and apply them in their life. For us 20 year old guys, I mean, we're just getting started. We don't, you know, we have to build that up over a course of a few years. So I just think it's the 20 year olds that are talking about it more via the blog form. Um, That's sort of a format that they feel comfortable with. But, Ian, when I meet lifestyle designers in person, people send me an email and say, hey, let's get together. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, Like, a lot of the people that are really applying this stuff are over 30 years old. That's just been my experience. Yeah, I think
1: you're right to say that a lot of people online are much younger. And uh, kind of there's tons and tons of guys that have been living this kind of lifestyle for for a long time.
0: Tons of examples I could just list off the top of my head. But I think, you know, as a 20-year-old uh, or Especially people that are plugged into this digital culture, we're more predisposed to express ourselves through the blog form. But say you're a 45-year-old a guy with a multi-million dollar business, you read the four-hour work week, you're going to apply those principles directly to your business and your life and your family you're not gonna maybe go start a blog and like start helping other people do that you've got a lot of things on your plate so great to hear from you Patrick one other voice call from Chris from my egg noodles take a listen take it away in china this is the phone call Buddy, you know that's not very great audio quality, but I just wanted to share. Chris, friend of the show, obviously uh, first sponsor to the show. Uh, I love what he's doing. I love he can't he can do no wrong in my book. Thanks to Chris Topher for for helping us fix the links on our site and for mentioning us on Hacker News, our favorite website. And thanks to Colin from Ebookling.com and Exile Lifestyle for actually putting our podcast. There's only three podcasts on that site when I checked it the other day. I got a Google alert. Because I set up my Google Alerts, Ian, so that means whenever somebody mentions this podcast on their blog, I get an email. And so I got an email that says, hey, Bookling mentioned you, man. So I go over there and I look at it and there's only three podcasts there and we're one of them. And I was like, that's yeah. banging.
1: I do the same thing. It's just I can't talk about what my key terms are on the uh the show. Ooh,
0: zing. One other thing that uh, Chris from My Egg Noodles mentioned is that he got a tip from the show, which is to use Constant Contact as an email list software. Uh, he uses that for some unsolicited email campaigns. And as we've talked about before, Ian, we do a lot of those as well. So ConstantContact.com is a great piece of software if you want to do an unsolicited campaign, be a shady scammer. Be a hustler hustler hustler.
1: Yeah, you can get kicked off constant contact for spamming people, but like we've found there are ways to kind of get around that. We've found ways to spam people without them feeling like they're getting spammed. And I think that's really the trick with unsolicited emails. That
0: like the first line of the email is like this is not a spam message. Right. Despite what you think. <laughs> Alright, so let's move on. We've got one listener question today from Danielle. And Danielle writes uh, she's been in the drop shipping business before, got out of it, had some problems. She wants to look into some other options and products to launch a new business. There are a number of drop shipping websites out there, Ian, such as AidandTrade.com and GlobalSources.com, that charge subscription fees to allow you to take a look at their manufacturers and eventually cut a deal with these people. She's basically saying, you know, is there a way I can avoid these subscription fees, or do you have a recommendation for a site? that's worth it. What you got, Ian? We do have, we are, I think we're in the global sources network, yeah? So what what's going on? What do you think about these sites that charge subscription fees to, to view manufacturers?
1: So basically what it sounds like Danielle is trying to do is outsource kind of the hard, you know, it's a lot of work to set up with manufacturers and to negotiate pricing and terms and things like that. But that is really the valuable stuff uh, that we're talking about here, especially if you're setting up a site online. So set yourself up to do the hard work. These aid and trade sites and things like that. Basically, you're paying them to just view what you can find on your own on the internet and you're essentially chopping your margins. So I think that you should take the time to set up uh, supplier-vendor relationships, negotiate better terms than maybe some of these sites can give you and go from there. I would not uh, sign up for any of these sites.
0: I agree. I mean, as being a member of Global Sources, part of it is is that... There's no qualification. Like anybody can be a vendor and anybody can be a, uh, an agent. And so you got these like super unqualified connections. And I think it's much better to focus on a market that you really think you could build an audience in or something that you really think you can sell. And then hitting the pavement, whether that be the internet or Alibaba or or the phone book, or whatever it's going to take to actually find the best supplier and develop a real relationship with them. There might be some import here if you're just like, you're out of ideas and you kind of want to see what's out there, but Alibaba's probably a better place if you just want to do some browsing.
1: Let me tell you, Daniel, this month
0: we've got a new
1: site up it's actually not that new anymore but we'll probably bring in uh, six to seven thousand dollars on that site and basically all we're doing is drop shipping product that somebody else is manufacturing we went out and we we developed vendor relationships and things like that and probably total time it only took uh, I don't know maybe four to five hours to actually develop those vendor relationships now there's a lot of other work you know getting the products up on your site and things like that that took much longer really valuable that we went out and did that because uh, if we went to global sources well a, these companies aren't on global sources, but B, uh, invest in yourself.
0: So the next step then is finding a supplier and making sure that you approach them in the right way. One of the ways that we approach new potential suppliers is to always focus on the fact that we want to be a buyer. A lot of people approach us and say, I'm setting up an e-commerce store and I want to be the biggest vendor for X or blah, blah, blah. It's kind of like I roll central for us, you know, like just go to suppliers and say, I'm interested in purchasing your products I believe that over the next 12 months, here's going to be my volume. Can we put together a phone call so I can get the details? Cut right to the chase. Like, Don't give them your life story. Don't tell them all these intentions. What people like Ian and I want to know, people that produce products, we want to know what kind of volume you're going to do and what kind of deal you're going to want in return. So anyway, that's our our call on aidandtrade.com. But don't take our word for it. We're not experts. We're just dudes with the business. Thank you for your question, Danielle. Let's jump into the meat and potatoes, Ian. we got a really exciting one this time. You know, we we fail all the time. And, you know, we mentioned a little bit in the last episode that we don't always talk about our failures. But it's interesting when we look back over the past year, me and you have dumped about 20 k down the drain into these two failed business ventures. Two things that we thought were going to be a good idea, and we ended up balking at both of them. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the process of how, why we thought it was a good business idea, what we did to develop it, and then how we decided to ditch it. We haven't had that one thing where it's like if you're Biz Stone and you develop Twitter and all of a sudden you've got a million users overnight you're not going to be having a bunch of sticks in your fire, right? You're going to be focusing on Twitter. But for Ian and I, we don't have that one explosive business. And so we do put a lot of new sticks in the fire and try to develop new streams of income. And so I think that's what most small businesses are doing. There's a lot of talk out there about focus, Ian. But it is a balancing act. You can't be focused on stuff that isn't making you millions of dollars.
1: Yeah, we're not really playing in any industries right now that are worth you know, $50 million. So we're kind of uh, looking for those opportunities. And I think part of that is diversifying. So that's basically what we're constantly doing is trying to diversify our business while focusing on the important and profitable parts. So I think when we pulled this episode together, it's really important for me, at least to convey to everybody how many times we failed over the last couple of years, because we just talk about uh, being successful or, or somewhat successful in, in our businesses right now. But really, uh, there's been a lot of uh, money poured down the drain and, and time poured down the drain where we failed. So let's talk about about that. Yeah.
0: And this is fun too, because since we're not currently in these businesses, we can just talk directly about exactly what we were going to do. So the first business that we failed and then one that you really saw the opportunity in Ian is motorcycle fairings and motorcycle fairings are those plastic pieces that you put around the outside of a motorcycle, like a sport bike, like a crotch rocket. Ian came to me, what was it like a eight months ago or something? And you sat me down and you said, I've got a huge idea there's a huge opportunity in the motorcycle fairing market. How did you identify that that idea? What was the moment when you realized that motorcycle fairings were a good idea.
1: Well, I ride bikes and so I had a little bit of insider information into the fairing business. Basically, these fairings that you see on bikes are injection molded plastic and injection molded plastic is extremely expensive to manufacture. Some of the molds cost fifty to to $100,000. Each bike has got a bunch of different bearings on it in which you need different molds. So, the issue is that when you wreck your bike and everybody wrecks their sport bike at one point or another, these fairings get cracked and so you have to replace them. When you go to the dealership, sometimes this can total out a bike, cost two or three grand just to get the fairings back on the thing. So what started to happen is over in China, people have started to Remanufacture these fairings at a fraction of the cost that you can buy them at the factory. So we saw a big opportunity to start uh, distributing these remanufactured fairings throughout the United States. We're not talking about just like putting up a website and selling them one-offs. We're talking about distribution through catalogs, dealerships, things like that. So we're kind of going off, we're kind of going after um, the big dog here in terms of distribution when we're um, eyeing up this industry. Now this is
0: sort of like a nascent Opportunity. I mean, there's not, at the time we were talking about this, there wasn't like tons and tons of people in this game. How did you get plugged into that insider information? You know, a lot of people have struggled with niche identification. I mean, what what was the moment that the light bulb went off for you?
1: You know, I have some buddies in the industry, and uh, we set up some meetings with some people in the industry, and we understood a little bit more about the distribution channel. You know, no one was distributing these things. I don't, I'm not sure if anybody still is distributing these on a large scale in the United States, so that was really the opportunity. And
0: I remember, can you tell us a little bit quickly about the meeting you had with one of the most major retailers here in San Diego how you set that up and like what kind of information what was your goal going into that meeting
1: they've got a huge online site and they've also got multiple dealerships here in San Diego and so what i wanted to talk to him about is if he had ever heard about these aftermarket fairings and what he thought about it what the pricing would have to be for that to work out in their organization because uh, we knew that if we could make it work with these guys we could probably make it work on
0: a much larger scale this guy's kind of a big shot how do you get a meeting with the guy
1: uh you know he's like really interested in the opportunity and i think most people are interested in opportunities. So kind of posed it as a new product to sell and something that we thought could both be really successful because as soon as you say, I want to distribute aftermarket motorcycle fairings at a fraction of the cost as factory ones, you know, the light bulb goes off in this guy's head and he also sees dollar signs because his margins are fairly low on these fairings. So if we could figure out a way to bring him more margins, he's interested. Okay,
0: so you have a meeting with this guy. He's all about it. You're all about it. You're already getting the wheels turning in China. Uh, You think this is a real opportunity, what's the next step? Well, there's some
1: gray area, uh, because basically what we're doing here is we're distributing motorcycle fairings that are essentially factory copies. So part of the reason why it wasn't happening on a larger scale is because some of what was going on was illegal. People were printing up Honda and Kawasaki stickers, uh, slapping them on these parts and uh, selling them. So our plan was to sell the fairings without the stickers because that was going to make it legit. The next step was to figure out who the manufacturer was and this actually presented quite a challenge because there was quite a few people offering this type of product in China and it was really hard to do it was really hard to decipher who was a trading agent and who was a manufacturer. When we started to dig really deep, which took several weeks, we
0: figured out that there's only actually two manufacturers for this kind of product. But you're seeing like 30 to 40 agents on Alibaba. So that's, that's a fascinating thing as well. Like You've only got two factories who've invested these huge mold costs, but then you've got a bunch of people running around trying to hustle this stuff. So it's, it's tough to cut through all of that 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 noise and find out what actually is going on true uh that's a tip for all you
1: guys trying to manufacture in china that's the first question you should be asking is are you the manufacturer or are you a trading agent and if they say trading agent you can assume that he's got some margin built in so if you're going to be doing any kind of volume uh, you're going to need to be able to figure out who the factory is and so that was our next challenge um, and since we couldn't do that over the internet, we actually have a sourcing agent on the ground in China that wasn't even able to figure out who the factory was. I decided to plop down and fly myself to Shenzhen for 30 days.
0: Dun, 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 dun. Taking massive action. So you show up in freaking Shenzhen, and what are you going to do? Are you Are going to start knocking on doors? I mean, what's your plan?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. We were on a mission to find the manufacturer. Basically, the way that the distribution works is you've got the manufacturer, and then you would have us. And then you would have a catalog company, and then you would have the dealer, and then you would have the end customer. So this thing was going to get chopped up quite a few times. So we're talking about cents here, down to the cents. So we really had to find the manufacturer. There was no use in us finding a sourcing agent. Um, Right. It proved to be really hard because this was around the time when it was starting to get hot. People were starting to put up eBay stores. Uh, selling this stuff. And so the manufacturers didn't want to get approached every day, so they were dispatching export agents. What I ended up having to do was pick up the phone and call all these factories in China. So here I am, white guy in China, picking up the phone, <laughs> asking, asking everybody to pass the phone off to who speaks English. And finally, 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 I found the guy that spoke English at the factory. And so what we did was we uh, set up a meeting.
0: All right, so you're sitting in the meeting room with these guys. Uh, you know that there's a a uh, business opportunity to distribute these fairings, you've done the math, you figured out I need to, I'm going to be the middleman here, I'm going to distribute through these retail networks, I need to get this number in order to, you know, have a feasible business. So you walk into this meeting, you know what you need to buy these products for, and so how do you approach the negotiation.
1: Well, the problem that was in front of us in in terms of the meeting was basically Jason, who was the guy that was representing the uh, factory, had a price list. We were like really far off from the prices that he was presenting to us and the prices that we needed. And so in about uh, two and a half hours, I had to convince Jason that uh, I had the most distribution channels in North America for this product and I was going to sell the most of this product of anybody who's ever seen in his whole life. So <laughs> that was a bit of a challenge because uh, the price was just so far off. In the end, uh, we ended up convincing Jason that uh, we were going to sell more of this product than he had ever seen move off his shelves. We got really, really close to the price point. That. At that point, uh, what we did was uh, we ordered a few samples, flew them back to uh, the United States and around the same time uh, I showed up back at the United States. They were there, got on Craigslist, had a couple buddies uh, let us borrow bikes, test him out. And
0: let me tell you what's going on on our end on the, on this one. We've At this point, the web team's activated. We're moving. We've got freaking $200 worth of domains. We've, you're taking photo shoots of this bike in, uh, in the warehouse. By the way, if you've got some photos still of this photo shoot we did, these bikes looked gorgeous with these fairings on. I mean, I remember we were excited. I mean, this shit looked good.
1: Yeah, it was really cool. The samples showed up and they were good quality. Of course, Samples always uh, generally show up good quality. That's the best uh, product you'll get right there as a sample, uh, and then when the production run comes in, you'll you'll usually figure out where the weak spots are. The samples look good. Uh, the bikes looked really good. Now is when we really had to start scratching our heads and uh, figure out if this was going to be a feasible business. We
0: were, basically what was going to be the first step for us. I mean, we, we had our niche websites up that were keyword rich URLs like you know aftermarketmotorcyclefairings.com or whatever. We had our key brand pulled together. We had our logos. We had everything ready to go. What was the next step? Who were we going to sell these things? And then how were we going to get a container of this stuff?
1: Between the meeting and when we got back, basically what started to break down was that the factory, in fact, wanted a much larger order than we had discussed and we were willing to make. So basically, they, they started to back out. And at the same time, we essentially started to back up. What they wanted was, really, I think it was somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000. And at the time, that was basically what was in our bank account. So,
0: so we placed a purchase order though, right?
1: Uh, we didn't actually place a purchase order, just sample orders. So okay, okay. they were essentially asking us for every penny in our bank account that we were going to risk on a brand new venture that we had done a lot of research for, but weren't currently in the industry and hadn't currently distributed these products. So quite a risk and quite a quite a chunk of cash.
0: At the time, it's difficult for me to remember, why didn't we just go to that guy in San Diego and say... say Hey, I can get you 20 sets of fairings for the Yamaha R3 or whatever... Um, R6. You know, are you R six? Yeah. Do, are you willing to uh, you know work with me to like work on that order? You know, if he's willing to make a commitment, then we could have gone to the factory and, and arranged it. Why don't we do something like that? You
1: know, I think we could have done that. That would have been one option. You know, another thing that we we're looking at at the time was uh, carbon fiber body parts for Ducatis, uh, which is still an interesting opportunity. If anybody wants to start distributing that, you know, let me know. I'll tell you all about it. But this was a big investment, and we had some other things going on, and some of our businesses that are doing really well. Right Right now, really, could benefit from that cash at the time, and so we had to uh, ask ourselves some hard questions. You know, where were we going to spend that uh, 50k in the next couple months? Where are we going to risk basically two years of, of building up that nest egg on this new business? And uh, in a lot of ways, you know, we chickened out. There, there's also another way to look at that, which was we just thought at that point it wasn't the best investment. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, this guy told you one price and then starts to back out. and. And it's always difficult when you're working with a new supplier, you're gonna drop a fifty k egg you know right into their basket, and like you said, relative to what we had going on, that was all of our cash, yeah it was and huge. how much money did we have after this venture? I mean how much money did you spend you know after my two hundred dollars worth of domains? How much money did you spend trying to get this thing off the ground?
1: Oh, uh, you know plane tickets samples, not including my time, I don't know we probably we probably spent in between four and $6,000. I I wouldn't say it's money lost at all. I mean, we learned a ton about the industry and when other opportunities pop up in that industry, I'm really interested in uh, working in the automotive and motorcycle industry. So once other opportunities uh, pop up,
0: I know a lot more about that industry and these products. So uh, I don't think it was time wasted, but it was interesting. One thing I learned is like, if you look at the structure of how this business works is that we were gonna be the middleman, the distributor for a cost saving product. These fairings made from China, the, the, the value to the market that they have is that they're cheaper. And so right. when you get into these cheap distribution plays, we should have been more clear to ourselves up front, maybe in retrospect, the kind of cash intensity that those kind of plays have. It's very rare that you can get yourself into the distribution business without a lot of cash. That's true. And so we kind of got shy with that 50K number. And here's the other thing about the distribution business that we learned. Margins are where it's at. I mean, it's all about margin pressure and volume. In reality, it's a race to the bottom. Unless you've got some kind of cartel going, you've got some strong arm commitments from your retailers or whatever, people are going to compete with you, and they're going to compete with you on price. And in order to compete in those kinds of markets, you need tons of cash. And we're just a little itty-bitty company. We had $50,000, and we were like, oh, you know, we can't we can't put all our eggs in, in just this one basket that we know very little about. Yeah. I mean, one thing that we did
1: think that we had going for us, well, actually two things that we thought we had going for us. The first thing is customer service. We haven't really talked much about customer service, but we probably have some of the best customer service in the world. I mean, I I really believe that. I mean, the level of customer service that we supply to people is ridiculous. And people come back and buy some stuff from us because of it. The second thing that we were going to provide was transparency in the industry. A lot of the guys that are selling these kind of products are kind of fly-by-night operations. We were going to be 100% transparent about what we were doing. And we're also going to give people a branded approach. And we were going to be the only guys that were... Distributing this stuff on a large scale. So we had a little bit of a plan, but like you said, we weren't really willing to part with our investment money.
0: Here we are, you know, we we explored the opportunity pretty thoroughly. We put six K in the hole. We we balked at a fifty K investment. Where are we now with motorcycle fairings and the motorcycle aftermarket?
1: Got a folder somewhere on my computer, and I'll uh, probably open it up to share a photo of uh, the bikes that we specked out. That's about it. Yeah,
0: send send me uh, send me the photos so we'll put them up on the blog. Uh, you know, this is a really interesting story. Thanks for sharing it. You know, thanks for going to China for a month too, man. I know that that stuff was difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think I've actually got a photo of the place where I stayed there, so it wasn't too bad. I'll send you that too.
0: All right. Well. I think we 're going to put off my colossal failure story, or at least I mean I was a big part of the motorcycle thing, but uh, you were the leader, and I was the leader on this other thing, basically a web application startup. I spent fifteen thousand dollars or even more than that on uh, with a development team in India. I think you 've heard this story before uh, i 'm going to sh-
1: yeah yeah we should we should save this, man. This is a really good story too. I want to hear more about this. But uh, I, think, I think we should save this and do a whole, whole other episode about failures. And then after that episode, we'll do another <laughs> episode because that's not where the failures. are. I think
0: stop, we so. could do 10 straight episodes about failures. So next, next week on the program, I'll share with you how I lost 15K on Elance like an idiot and have nothing to show for it. Uh, uh, let's move on to the quick tips, tricks, and or funny jokes section. So Ian, uh, you're texting people but with your voice. What's up with that? Explain this to me. Yeah, I
1: got this new application. I feel like I'm 16 years old all over again. It's great. It's called Heytel and it works for uh, the iPhone. I think it's on Droid too. And basically what it is, is like, you guys uh, remember uh, text to talk on Nextel? I think they still have that in like developing countries or something, but... Uh, or like construction, construction workers. workers and developer. Uh, yeah, develop, yeah, yeah. Uh, text to talk or or, or push to talk. I, I actually really wanted a push to talk phone when I was younger, but uh, didn't work out. So, anyways, now I have it. It's called Heytel. Uh, and it's basically an iPhone application. You go in there. You hold down the button. You talk. You release it, and it sends it right to your buddy. I love it because I hate texting. Texting just goes on forever. Not that uh, Haytel doesn't,
2: go <laughs> I don't know. I hate texting.
1: I'm not good at it, and I think Haytel is pretty cool. So uh, check it out. It's basically a push-to-talk application. What cool, cool. I
0: got a quick tip. Uh, I am. Uh... I'm actually only 60% of the way through this book, but I'm already positive that this is easily, easily the most important book that I've read this year, and it's not about business, but valuable in the sense of truthfulness. And there's about six or seven books that I've read in my life that I think explain the nature of the world more accurately than I've sort of ever seen elsewhere, and this one is one of those, and I'm extremely excited to talk about the ideas with both you. We're reading it together. And the listeners and anybody who wants to talk about this, the name of the book is What Technology Wants. It's by Kevin Kelly. If you don't follow Kevin Kelly, check out KK.org. Uh, he's the founder of Wired Magazine. Uh, his Ted, one of his TED Talks, I can't remember which year it is. I'll find it and put it on the blog. Is absolutely one of the most fascinating TED Talks I've ever seen in my life he is required reading for all the actors and actresses that were in the matrix movies. He's a a profound thinker, a profound futurist. He I truly believe he explains the nature of the world, the nature of life in such a revealing and exciting way. You know, I can't wait to get done with this podcast so I can just jump right right back into the book and think about it. And um also in the future I want to talk about those other six books because in our 10 game-changing thinkers books, we talked about game-changing thinkers in terms of our business. But there's a whole other thing, which is philosophy and life. Those things really fascinate me, too. I think there's probably about six or seven books that are in my canon of truthfulness, so to speak. And, man, if Kevin Kelly didn't just scoot his way right in there. And uh, this is a very, very exciting book. So that's, again, What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly. If you've got yourself a Kindle, like you should, just jump right on that thing and buy it. It's 14.99 right now because it just came out. You will not regret it. You will not regret it. You will not regret it.
1: Booyah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that book with you on the podcast. So
0: let's do that. All right. Well, Ian, thanks for joining me today. Today we're going to play you out with one of Ian and I's favorite tracks produced by the band Phoenix from France, 1901. Get your groove on. Go rock that business. Go make some cold calls. Go make it happen. Talk to you later, Ian. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. Don't be shy. We've got a mailing list, lifestyle Go there, get yourself signed up, and we'll keep you up to date on everything we do.
1: Counting on, different ideas drifting away. Past and present will matter